You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us at the United States Institute of Peace for an event and a conversation that will be uh, focusing on the importance of documenting the impact of war on civilians in Bosnia and Herzegovina. I am Philippe Leroux Martin. I'm the Director for Governance, Justice, and Security here at the Institute. Um, the U.S. Institute of Peace, for those of you who may not be uh, still as familiar with the Institute, uh, was established in 1984 uh, by an act of Congress that was signed. Partisan public institution dedicated to helping efforts to prevent, uh, resolve, and mitigate uh, violent conflict abroad. Um, after two years, it's been two years of a long pandemic, and after two years, we're delighted, we're thrilled that we can open up the institute to the public, uh, and we've been hosting an exhibit uh, over the summer. Uh, here at the Institute, and we're absolutely thrilled to be able to welcome people back uh, at the Institute uh, so that we can have those kinds of events, but also uh, people can visit uh, the, the exhibit here at the Institute. Our event today is part of a series uh, of events that we've been hosting that are focusing on themes or countries that are featured or chronicled by the Imagine exhibit we're hosting this summer here at USIP. Uh, together with the Seven Foundation. The exhibit um, uh, tries to chronicle the impact of war on communities uh, in conflict-affected environments and uh, tries also to showcase how communities uh, have felt the impact of the war but also have managed to overcome uh, uh, violent conflict in countries. One of the countries that is featured in the exhibit is Bosnia and Herzegovina. And Bosnia was the theater of a violent conflict between 1992 and 1995, uh, where brutal campaigns of ethnic cleansing claimed the lives of more than 100,000 people and displaced more than 2 million people. Um, it is a conflict for those of us who have worked either during the conflict, who have covered the conflict, either during the conflict or, or after the war, um, I think there's a feeling amongst us that it is a war and a violent conflict that has a lot of relevance when we look at other events today in the world, particularly uh, when we're seeing uh, Russia's invasion <coughs> of Ukraine playing out today. It is relevant for a number of reasons. Um, I would suggest that it's relevant because, number one, of the very configuration of the conflict in Bosnia. It is a war that, was, uh, that broke out in a former communist state in the heart of Europe. Uh, the war was the result of an expansionist, uh, nationalist project that was brewing in neighboring states. Um, and um, it is also a war that is relevant because of the manner in which this conflict unfolded. Uh, it's a conflict that was characterized by widespread war crimes crimes against humanity, as well as an act of genocide that was committed in the town of Srebrenica. Uh, it is relevant as well um, 
for us because these atrocities were followed by efforts to hold perpetrators of crimes that were committed during the war in Bosnia accountable for such crimes. Um, and a number of institutions, both international or national, were established uh, in the aftermath of the war to pursue accountability for these crimes. And that work and that, those institutions relied on the work of journalists, photographs, academics, investigators, who continuously tried to document uh, the impact of the war on society, but also uh, atrocities that were committed during this conflict. And this is what ties us to the, uh, the exhibit that we're hosting here at USIP, where the work of journalists, photographers, who have covered a number of conflicts is featured here at USIP. And so to dive more deeply into how this work unfolded and the importance of this work uh, in Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, we have the pleasure today of being joined by uh, a set of panelists, of very distinguished panelists, uh, to help us dive more deeply into the importance of this work. First, we're uh, joined here on stage by Paul Curring. Paul is a, an attorney, but in a previous life was a foreign correspondent for the Globe and Mail for many, many years. And Paul covered several conflicts throughout his career, including um, the war in Bosnia and Herzegovina, where he was reporting from Bosnia and writing about the conflict in the summer of 1993. We're also joined by Gérard Toile. Gérard is uh, an academic. He's a professor uh, here at Virginia Tech at the School of uh, Public and International Affairs. Um, Gerard uh, published a book on um, displacement uh, as a consequence of conflict in Bosnia and international efforts to reverse the impact of uh, those, those population displacements during the war. Uh, we're also joined online um, by um, participants. Uh, we're joined by, uh, <laughs> whom I see now, uh, we're joined by Valerie Hopkins. Valerie is a foreign correspondent for the New York Times. Uh, Valerie reported extensively uh, on Bosnia and Herzegovina and the Western Balkans writ large um, uh, many years after the, after the war and is now reporting for the New York Times on uh, the war in Ukraine. Valerie, uh, welcome and thank you for joining us. We're also uh, joined by Emina Muzaferia. Uh, Emina is a researcher, and she also worked as a, she's a former staff member at the United Nations <coughs> uh, Residual Mechanisms for Criminal Tribunals based in The Hague. And last but not least, we're also joined by uh, Ayla Terzic. Ayla is also a journalist by profession, but Ayla is also an author who published uh, uh, numerous works of fiction, as well as short stories and poetry. And so we're very pleased to be able to uh, uh, have uh, such distinguished panelists today to help us dive into this, um, this, this important conversation that we're having. I wanted just to, this is a big subject, uh, as, we, uh, as, as, as we can imagine. And I wanted to structure our conversation today into three segments uh, to make the topic more manageable. Uh, first, I wanted to focus uh, on the efforts that were undertaken, undertaken sorry, during the war period between 1992 and 1995. Then I'd like to uh, shift our discussion and talk about the importance of documenting <clears throat> the impact of war in the aftermath of the war, and then have a conversation about that specific period and the work that was done during that period. And last, I'd like to spend a little bit of time 
in order for us to connect the work that was done in Bosnia to other conflicts around the world, including uh, particularly the conflict that is currently unfolding in Ukraine. So uh, without taking uh, any much of your time with introductions, I'd like to jump right into the first segment of the conversation, which, we, which will focus on the 1992-1995 uh, period during the war. And I wanted to start with Paul. Uh, as I mentioned, and the reason, Paul, I wanted to start with you is, as I mentioned in the introduction, you were reporting from Bosnia and Herzegovina in 1993. And you were one of the few foreign correspondents who managed to interview Ratko Mladic, who was the Bosnian Serb general in control of an area in Bosnia <clears throat> around Srebrenica. And you were able to uh, have a meeting with Ratko Mladic and interview him. Ratko Mladic, who was later uh, found guilty of war crimes, crimes against humanity, uh, as well as genocide. Um, and I wanted to start off just so that we understand the dynamics of the conflict and what was going on with more granularity. Um, I wanted to ask you, how did that that interview with Ratko Mladic go? What was his perspective on the conflict? And what was his perspective on uh, Srebrenica? Well, it's interesting because meeting Mladic was an accident. And anybody who's ever spent any time in war zones, and certainly a lot of time in war zones, knows that war's messy and, and lots of things just happen that you don't anticipate. In June, and in May actually, but this happened in June, um, like a lot of other journalists, I was trying to get into Srebrenica. Srebrenica had been uh, lots and lots of uh, Bosnian Muslims had been driven into Srebrenica in a large and violent and very effective campaign by the Bosnian Serb military to, to the term has become ethnic cleansing, uh, to drive and tens of thousands, probably over 25,000 people have been driven into Srebrenica. And so the objective was to get into Srebrenica. And you couldn't get in. There were two sets of lines. There was a Bosnian Muslim line defending it. And there was a very tight sort of iron circle of Serb military around it. So crossing, crossing front lines uh, in active war zones is difficult. And what we needed, I was traveling with a, a journalist called Lloyd Robertson of the BBC, and we had traveled a lot together. What we needed was to find a local Serb commander who would let us cross the first set of lines. We weren't actually looking for Mladic. Uh, and we were hanging around the outside of a Serb base, and Mladic gets out of a vehicle. And I mean, he wasn't infamous then the way he is now. And frankly, Srebrenica wasn't uh, infamous then the way it is now. Srebrenica at that time was one of four or five, I think, supposedly safe havens. And there were all kinds of terrible rumors about it. And that's why journalists try to get in. Anyway, we, we saw Mladic, and we ran over towards him. And his guards kept us away. And, but he kind of waved us in. And he said, I'll give you two minutes or five minutes or whatever he gave us. And, and as happens, you know, two minutes lasted to 15 minutes, and then with this sort of uh, hospitality that you find all over the Balkans, he says, oh, you better stay for dinner. So we stay for dinner, and then it's, there's, it's this long alcohol-fueled dinner, and we keep asking if we can get into Srebrenica, and the conversation goes on about uh, 
how he feels the Serbs have been misunderstood and mistreated, and he is at times very emotional. Um, uh, but there's lots of Slivovitz around too, so uh, this is hardly your formal interview with a, a senior military commander. And um, so we knew while this was happening that this interview with Mladic was fascinating because he was the Bosnian Serb commander, or the Serb commander. Um, but we also really wanted a piece of paper from him that would get us through the front lines. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Mladic was a happy accident. The interview with Mladic was a happy accident in which he was stridently defending both his troops and his activities. And you know, the West was completely to blame for misunderstanding what was going on. The Serbs had saved Europe from uh, from. Islam before, and they were doing it again, and they were deeply misunderstood. At the end of the evening, we wound up with a piece of paper uh, and a great interview. But the, it was the piece of paper that we originally were looking for, mm -hmm. and it was that piece of paper that got us into Srebrenica the next morning. And by piece of paper, you mean a, a laissez-passer? Literally, mm -hmm. he scrawled a couple of lines and signed it and handed it to us. Uh, and it worked, but he, there were conditions. We couldn't drive in. We had to walk in, which uh, probably seemed like an OK condition halfway through that meal the night before. But at dawn the next morning as we walked in, and the defenders didn't know we were coming. I mean, the Serbs knew we were walking in, but the Bosnian Muslims defending the place didn't know we were coming in. Here are these two idiots walking down the street, or walking down this road uh, with their hands out, hoping that this is going to work. And it did. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it was nerve wracking. So you're armed with this authorization to, to enter, and you decide to go in. So can you tell us about what you observed in Srebrenica in the summer of 1993? Well, it was horrific. I mean, frankly, uh, in some ways, it exceeded the rumors in terms of how bad it was. In some ways, it didn't match the rumors. I mean, there weren't, there weren't bodies lying in the streets. Um, but there was lots of death. I mean, you could smell it, and it wasn't just livestock. There were, there were plenty of humans in very shallow graves. The smell of death was there. Um, it was active zone. I mean, there was gunfire. Um, but there were also uh, there were also internal tensions, vicious, nasty internal tensions inside Srebrenica because you had people who used to live there or did live there who had houses and farms and cars and uh, there was no gas. But they had, you know they had establishments and then you had these twenty thousand or more people who were refugees um, who put an enormous burden on the infrastructure. And the relations between the residents and the refugees ranged from uh, enormously kind and helpful to people to really ugly and nasty. I mean, there were, there were more than 1,000 people in the school that had no water. Uh, Humanitarian agencies would bring in, would bring in baby formula, but 
talked to mothers with little kids who were refugees, said they never saw any. Um, so there's a real tension internally, too. And the Bosnian Muslim commander, a guy called Nasser Orich, who was also accused and eventually acquitted of war crimes, I mean, he was running the show. Uh, and that included, you know, he had fuel. Nobody else had fuel in, in Srebrenica. And, but, but cigarettes and American dollars would, there was active prostitution rings, there were active smuggling rings. Um, it was an ugly, fetid hellhole. Mm -hmm. uh, surrounded, of course, by people who were putting enormous military pressure on, too. I'm not, I'm not, uh, it was ugliness on all sides. Mm -hmm. uh, this, of course, was two years before the massacre. So Trebrenica now means something largely because of the outcome. But the Srebrenica that I was reporting on in that brief time there in June of 93 was, uh, was frankly more about the grotesque, ridiculous failure of safe havens than it was about the outcome. I mean, they were, It's easy in retrospect to make judgments, uh, but there was no need for retrospect. Safe havens were a really colossally stupid idea from the moment they were announced, and they didn't get any better. And, uh, and there are plenty of lessons to learn out of the Bosnian War, and um, the massacre at Srebrenica provides plenty of lessons, but the facts leading up to it provide other important lessons, too, because that was ine uh, inevitable is the wrong word. It was a disaster waiting to happen, mm -hmm. and it did happen. And Paul, we're talking about different perspectives on documenting and different roles and different professions uh, helping to document what is going on. For you as a journalist, what it's hard to, it's probably a hard question for you to answer, but did you have a sense, a specific sense of your mission as a journalist as you were entering uh, such a sensitive point of conflict in, in Bosnia at such a sensitive time? Um, yeah, it's actually not a difficult question because, uh, because I think Good journalism, whether it's in a sort of a suddenly bizarre place like Srebrenica or something far more mundane, is, is uh, I mean, there's this cliche, but it's the first rough draft of history, which is journalists like it because it sounds, you know, it sounds august. Uh, that also means you're going to get lots of it wrong. So your job that day is the same as the job every day, which is given the circumstances, how much can you get right about what's going on. Um, and you know, sometimes you look back. I, I hadn't thought about Trebrenica for years. And I look back on the stuff that I was writing, and you, know, you feel good because you go, wow, that, that looked OK. But I'm sure there are other days where you'd look back on the stuff and think, wow, that was just completely wrong. But, but Trebrenica was pretty, once you got in, getting in was harder than doing the job once you got in. 
getting in was the t getting in, and of course, it's long before the internet, filing was tough. It's not like the servers are going to let you write or file the stuff you wanted to file. Mm -hmm. But the mission, if you will, and that may be too vainglorious a word for it, is your, uh, your eyes on the ground. And if you're the only eyes that day, or there's only a couple of you that day, and it's important, and it's pretty obvious when it's important, then there's a greater onus to get it right. Mm -hmm. So to that point, and on the role of journalists, and I wanted to ask um, maybe Ayla, who was there in Bosnia uh, at that very same time. You were younger, obviously. You were a teenager. Um, what was the perception of journalists, what they were doing, the role of journalists? Um, were there hopes attached to what they were reporting on, hoping that the message would go out? Were there, were there uh, were people critical of the role of journalists? How, how did you perceive the role of journalists such as Paul uh, while, during the conflict, uh, Ayla? Well, Philippe, uh, the, the role of journalists in, in war in Bosnia was absolutely critical. Because um, I mean, there was no any other mean to to convey the message, to send the message to the outside world, and uh, Bosnians very much relied on that, on both local journalists and local infra infrastructure, but also on uh, on foreign voices and the bravery of foreign journalists who came to Bosnia to to report. And as it was earlier said, I mean, we, from this perspective, we have to understand that it was. We were living in this horror reality show where we were trying to, at the same time, understand what was going on, uh, to, to do our jobs at the same time, who was doing their jobs, and to, to, prep, to, to protect your life and your family. And uh, from today, today's perspective, it's just, uh, I think every year I need to uh, revisit what I have experienced myself. Uh, I was 13 years old when the war started and uh, I was living in, in Travnik in central Bosnia with uh, my family, with my, 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 my parents and my brother. And many things have happened. And uh, as I said, for me personally, it was a learning curve how to process that has the interest in journalism, in, in writing, in just trying to understand how I'm 30 years on, I still can't wrap my head around it, to be honest. And uh, for me, the I would say the turning point was when I read the book by Peter Maas, Love Thy Neighbor. The book was uh, published just after, translated and published just after the war. And uh, that was a completely shocking revelation for me. I, I think Peter, Peter Moss was correspondent for Washington Post at the time. And uh, from today's perspective, I'm understanding that it also took some, a significant amount of time, weeks, months, even years, for the right information to get from one part of Bosnia to another. So that was particularly uh, important element in this, uh, in every discussion about war. And everything was fragmented. There, it was, I mean, the war in Bosnia marked a completely uh, 
new phase in um, in reporting, in setting the infrastructure, in as it was said, in filing the news and just sending it to the outside world. Thanks, Ayla, for sharing uh, your, your your views and your thoughts and your insights about this. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to move to the the second segment of the conversation and focus on. Again, the role of journalists, photographers, uh, investigators, academics in documenting the impact of war on society, but move to the period that followed uh, the, the active war in, in Bosnia. Uh, I wanted to turn to Valerie, to, um, because I know that Valerie has been reporting uh, and has spent a, a significant amount of time visiting Srebrenica uh, several times after the war. And um, Valerie published a piece in the Financial Times where she reflected and shared some of her observations visiting Srebrenica after the war uh, recently. Um, but given that Paul uh, visited Srebrenica during the war, uh, I'd be interested in your, in your view of Srebrenica after the war, but also if your perception of your role as a journalist um, uh, aligns with, with that of Paul uh, at, at the time. Thank you so much, and thank you very much for inviting me to this panel. It's really a big honor to, to be here with so many uh, people whose work I've long admired and, and read and has shaped my own understanding of Bosnia and war reporting. Um, I was lucky enough to spend about 10 years covering the Balkans, three of those years living in Sarajevo um, and later in Kosovo and in, in Budapest, but always being able to return to Srebrenica. And if, if we want to talk about Srebrenica specifically, you know, each, I say over those 10 years already, a lot has changed. I'll be very interested to hear um, Gerard's perspective as well, because I think he uh, was following uh, developments in Srebrenica and the rest of Bosnia in terms of the way that populations shifted, moved, returned, left. And, and I think the period uh, that I spent covering Srebrenica can be sort of broadly defined as, as you know, people having returned and settled and then leaving again. Um, but, but first of all, I want to say that I think it's, it's very important to, I think it's very important to continue to report on these sites of mass atrocities on these communities because, you know, when everybody thinks about Srebrenica, of course, they think about um, the thousands of men and boys that were killed there br brutally, but they don't think always that this is a living, breathing community, that there are children uh, being educated there. <laughs> That, uh, that there's a music school, that there's football teams, that, that there's life going on, and that actually this is one of the unique places in Bosnia uh, where Serbs and Bosniaks are living together side by side uh, in a community going to the same schools um, and hearing very different things at their homes um, than some of them may hear in the school. Uh, but I think, I think, um, by and large, unfortunately, what I have to say is that the trajectory has been fairly negative. People expect, often with the passage of time, that you know time heals all wounds and all this stuff. And in fact, I think in the case of Srebrenica, uh, things have, have probably gotten a lot worse in many ways. Uh, there's a much stronger prevailing climate of denial. Um, you know, when I went for the first time on the Marshmira, the, the peace march uh, that takes place in the three days prior to the July 11th uh, commemoration, um, you know, we, 
thousands of people would go and guarded by police or not, you know, march through through the same route that, that people took through the hills when they fled. You know, now I'm told that even police were, were blocking the, the route this year. Um, and I think a lot of that probably started in 2016 uh, when, when a Serb mayor was actually elected in Srebrenica. You know, everybody sees the, the images of the commemoration, the dignitaries that come every year. That's when most foreign journalists remember to write about Srebrenica because it is, you know, it's a difficult, I found it difficult having years covering the Balkans to insist to my editors that we still need to write about this, that we still need to cover this, that, that what's happening there is still important. Um, and in 2016, yeah, I drove, I remember, from Kosovo to, to, to Srebrenica um, just a, a day or two after Mladen Grucic uh, was elected mayor. And what I heard from my friends in Srebrenica made me really sad because before they had always said, you know, look, we all came back. We found a way of uh, coexisting. We all greet each other. You know, we're friends. The post office is integrated. The institutions are, are, are working, you know. And my friend told me, yeah, that morning I went to the shop and nobody, none of the Serbs looked at me, nobody said hello, you know. They didn't put down the newspaper. They sort of uh, totted up my, my, my belonging, my purchases uh, and sent me on my way, you know. That, that something sort of broke. And I think it's really, really difficult uh, for a community now to have a mayor who doesn't recognize what happened in Srebrenica as a genocide, um, who, you know, when you log into the, the, the website, I just checked the, the mayor's website today, and it says, you know, Happy Easter. <laughs> there's no mention of, of either recent items. Uh, there's a note that the municipality won't be working on the 11th or 12th, because the 11th is um, the day of mourning the Bosniak victims and the 12th is the day of mourning Serbian, uh, Serb victims, excuse me. Um, but, but I think more corrosive than that is also just the increase in denial. When I went in 2020 uh, to spend a few weeks in Srebrenica, you know, I was there during the commemoration before and after, and it was quite alarming to go on the 12th uh, to the Serb commemoration because the, the local priest of Srebrenica uh, basically was repeating a lot of the same things that, that Paul said. Uh, Mladic was repeating that, you know, here in Srebrenica, the DRS was defending against, you know, a century, in a part, taking part in a centuries-long battle to defend the region against Muslims. And, you know, he tied it to the, to the refugee crisis. He tied it to ISIS. Uh, and he, you know, he is a spiritual leader of this community, imparting the next generation, um, imparting his wisdom on the next generation. And, and this is the message that he chooses to send. Um, so I find, I find a lot of these trends really, really quite alarming. And I think one of the main one, um, for instance, I mentioned there were, you know, multi-ethnic postal workers. I think the main trend, which, which we can see also across Bosnia is just exodus. Uh, and the same thing is true in Srebrenica. You know, I, I spoke to a lot of people who decided to return, you know, uh, including, you know, the last uh, postal worker, the last Bosniak postal worker who lived in a village outside of Srebrenica. He came to work every day, delivered his mail in the wider region. Um, and in 2019, he had finally had enough. Again, after the municipal elections, uh, 
Uh, he said the way that people treated him in his office uh, didn't make him feel very good. You know, he had insisted on returning, even though he, as a 16-year-old child, had fled the, mass the genocide. He spent 78 days in the forest eating grass and mushrooms, um, watching the people with him getting killed. But, you know, he said, I'm coming back to show that I wasn't erased. And now, you know, in 2019, he was like, I don't need this anymore. Why, why am I doing this? He left, he moved to Austria, he found a job, and that's it. And I think, for me, that's the most uh, devastating, one of the most devastating part of the whole story is, is that there were people who, uh, as part of the efforts that I think Gerard will probably speak about, hopefully, um, you, you know, decided to, to, that home is exactly where they want to be. Uh, and now his home, I think, is, you know, he was the last person living in his village. His home is overgrown. Uh, and maybe, you know, the whole village is overgrown with grass and, and bushes, and uh, no one's taking care of it anymore. And for me, that's a, that's a very big tragedy. Um, Paul, did you, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> Philippe, did you, you wanted also to talk about journalism. I feel like I've already been that's uh, That's perfectly fine. We have plenty of time we can come back to. Good, and, thanks. And, uh, thanks, Valerie. We've talked a lot about the role of journalists and highlighted uh, the role that journalists played. I wanted to, and Valerie was mentioning here, um, denial uh, as well, that certain facts and, uh, had, had occurred. And in that case, the denial by a number of Bosnian Serb politicians, including the mayor in Serbia, said that genocide, the very act of genocide that was internationally recognized as having occurred, uh, had occurred. That ties in, I think, very closely to the work that academics and the, the role of rigorous academic uh, work in documenting, in analyzing what happened in the war. And I wanted to turn, obviously, to Gerard, given uh, Gerard's <coughs> work in a number of uh, you know, post-communist conflict um, space where he's, 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 he's developed extensive expertise, but also on, on Bosnia. Uh, but Gerard, you spent a tremendous amount of time between 1999 and 2002 researching um, uh, the, the internal and I think external displacement, but the displacement of populations that was the result of the war. Uh, and your work also focused on international efforts and the work done by the international community to reverse uh, ethnic cleansing campaigns in Bosnia. And you published and you co-authored a book that is highly regarded today by many people who uh, are, are interested in, in understanding what happened in Bosnia and are studying Bosnia as a subject matter. Can you tell us about your role, your work, and the importance of rigorous academic work uh, in, in such a setting? Sure. Um, well. First of all, I am just one of many different academics who have done research in Bosnia. And uh, uh, here I'd want to mention my um, collaborator and co-author on the book, uh, Bosnia Remade, uh, Dr. Carl Dahlman, who uh, I traveled with and spent time with uh, doing the research that uh, you know, was the basis for that book. It took 10 years. Uh, I mean, we started in 2000 and we wrote a grant in 2001. We went 2002. I uh, went back a number of years. The book wasn't published until 2011. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and we built upon the 
work, that rough first draft, Paul, that you talked about, uh, and the work that uh, people like Valerie, the great work that she's doing in Ukraine today, and uh, we built upon uh, what journalists uh, had written. That was extremely helpful um, for going in and looking at what happened uh, in uh, these places to, to kind of tell the story of Bosnia and how Bosnia had been remade, we decided to focus on, on three different places. Uh, and so we had to go uh, quite local in order to get that story. Um, and so we were, drew upon journalists, but also a terrific effort on the part of the international community, uh, the people that went as part of the various organizations, the aid organizations who were there during the war, uh, uh, helping deliver aid, uh, and then uh, the various international organizations, the United Nations, uh, the Office of the High Representative, uh, UNHCR, uh, you know, Mercy Corps, lots of other organizations. And they had you know, volunteers from all over the world uh, who went to uh, these small towns in Bosnia in order to try to uh, implement the Dayton Peace Accords. Um, and you will recall that the war in Bosnia in part was about the, you know, ethnic cleansing, it's about demographic re-engineering. It was essentially a war by men with guns and maps in their heads. And they were going to make the real, which is places and communities conform to the maps that they had in their heads. And those maps were of cleared territories. This is ours. This is where the border is going to be. That is, the, is going to be theirs. And so in essence, that was an attack on the real. It was an attack on communities. It was an attack on, uh, on families and on living places. Um, and uh, it unfolded in horrific ways, ways we see in, in our screens today in, in Ukraine. But the goal was that demographic re-engineering of the, of the country. Uh, and terror, uh, murder, uh, forced, violent forced displacement associated with that. And you know, this was not only the VRS, uh, the, the Serb army, there also was, uh, uh, there was a Croat dimension to it, uh, Croat uh, forces were, were doing this, and then uh, the, there were various responses on the ground by the Bosnian army. Uh, to this, but by and in large, it was uh, it, it was essentially a pincer movement on the part of the militias that were supported by uh, the Serb government at the time and the Croatian government at the time. But but there were real uh, you know local forces that were driving this. Um, the international community with the Dayton Peace Accords had one annex, Annex Seven, and that's what my colleague and I, I went to research which was um, Annex 7 said that uh, there was the possibility that people could go back to their homes. People had a right to return uh, to their homes. And crucially, they had a right to get their property back. Uh, and so what we did is we looked at this uh, effort by the international community to try to reverse ethnic cleansing. Can, could it be done? Um, and it was an enormous effort. Uh, and so as an academic, 
when what academics were trying to do, we were trying to sort of document what the international community was seeking to do. Uh, they, the international community, uh, including the uh, I-4, uh, the implementation force and S-4 later on, what they were doing was gathering very detailed information about the places and what had happened to the places uh, where, where uh, houses had been destroyed, where communities had lost infrastructure, and then the international community would put together a plan. And it was almost like a battle plan of, we're going to go to this community, uh, we're going to try to have return in this community. And that re requires uh, re-establishing electricity lines. It, it requires a putting, essentially, an initial visit by displaced persons who want to go back to their homes to allow them to, cl to clean their homes. It requires demining. It was an enormous effort on the part of the international community. Um, and this happened all over Bosnia. And it wasn't a, simply a case of Bosniaks returning to places where they were displaced from. There were also Serbs and Croats who were Bosnian Serbs, Bosnian Croats, who were displaced too, who had the right to, to claim this. Um, the upshot of all of this, and it's a long story, but the upshot of all of this is that uh, a number of people were able to get their houses back, they were able to get, uh, to reconstruct their houses, but not all of them stayed. Quite a number of them uh, were going back into situations which, uh, as Valerie pointed out, were, you know, hostile, um, and were places of trauma for them. Uh, and uh, after a while, they, they sold those houses uh, and uh, went back to an area where they were more comfortable. Um, uh, you know, there's lots more to be said, but in terms of what academics are, do, are doing, what we try to do is to sort of bring the, all of that together uh, and tell that story, but in a way that uh, doesn't fall into a trap of, we're just telling the story from one perspective, we're actually trying to have an empathetic stretch to other perspectives, while not falling into the other trap of saying it's all equal, everyone is to blame, everyone is victimized. That also is, is that's inadequate as a, as a perspective. Thanks, Gerard. Um, <clears throat> we, we talked about journalists, we just heard about uh, your viewpoint on the, the role of academic work and the kind of work that academics can, can do in, in those settings. I wanted to turn now to, to Isla and um, talk about the role of literature. Uh, Isla, we are fortunate enough to uh, be able to count on uh, an author uh, with us, uh, which I think gives and injects a lot of uh, a fresher look on the, on the attempt to, to document what was going on after the war. But for you, what, what is the role of literature in, 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 in such a setting after the war? And, and, and the cultural field more broadly, could you tell us how you see literature and the cultural field playing a role uh, in, in the aftermath of, 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 the, of the war in Bosnia? Oh, absolutely, Philippe. Uh, so, I mean, aside that uh, literature for me is a lifeline and uh, it's kind of hard at this point to, to, dis to distinguish uh, how 
to, to what degree that was influenced by the war, and certainly it was, but uh, literature and has tremendous uh, importance in, in not only in, in documenting war, but opening discussions. Uh, during every uh, war anniversary, there are round tables, there are uh, panels and uh, all sorts of um, um, gatherings, not only in the capital Sarajevo, but but globally. For instance, uh, if you if you walk down down the main street in Sarajevo, you will see a number of books, uh, fiction, memoirs, uh, history books. Uh, just recently, uh, a book by beloved general, war general uh, Yavan Divyak was uh, was published, uh, titled "Don't Shoot." So those are those are extremely important accounts on on questioning what has happened to open the dialogue to reflect uh, on our own role on our um, on every possible to question every possible as aspect of um, the, the war has played uh, in our lives and um, so what I can say given that um, I, my, my background is literature um, there has been a continuous uh, production and, and publication of, of anti-war novels, both uh, regionally and locally in Bosnia-Herzegovina, and most of these um, have managed to, to get um, translations, not only to English, but to, to so many uh, European languages. Um, at the same time, uh, if, if I will speak from my own perspective, uh, I had my own learning curve in, in how to process not only war in writing, but how to process an abundance of those accounts. And uh, I would say from today's perspective, I wish that I could read more of these accounts from, from female authors, because at some points there was an abundance of accounts from trenches, from specifically from male perspective. And that's something that has strictly marked the, um, the, the publications, um, the, the, the literature in general. And at the same time, as you know, uh, Bosnians are very proud, proud of their attachment to, to culture. So that was also an important lifeline uh, during the war. And um, there, are, there are so many famous, famous people that came to, to, to Sarajevo during siege, such as Susan Zantag, to, to, uh, to direct packet and, and etc. And that had huge importance for, for citizens, just not, not to feel that they're, they're left behind. And of course, risking their lives to, to, to leave the shelters and to go in to, to see the, um, a play, for instance, or a book reading. And uh, also uh, during the war, uh, Center Andre Malraux founded uh, European uh, Literary Encounters, and um, that uh, I think that that was that went on for a number of years. And so many important literary names uh, from glo globally came to Sarajevo, and uh, discussions were held, panels just questioning what has happened over the years. And also we have to understand that new documents are resurfacing, new, um, uh, new ways of tackling that very specific topic uh, are emerging. For instance, uh, 
right now we have a number of young authors who are uh, writing in German. They, there are second generations of uh, writers living in, in, notably in Austria, where there's a big community of, of, of people from the from former Yugoslavia. And uh, so they are questioning their identity from a very unique perspective. And it's usually written in German and then translated to, to, to Bosnian or Serbian or, or Croatian. So I would say that just giving the voices and uh, to not only young people, but just bringing some new narratives into the whole discussion is of, of tremendous importance. And also in my case, uh, I remember when I was working on my master thesis, there are so many uh, examples how how Bosnia uh, developed over the years, and uh, there was a specific uh, comparison between Rwanda at the time and uh, uh, and Bosnia. The the book that I'm talking about is Hope and Memory by Tetan Todorov, Bulgarian French uh, historian and sociologist. And if I'm going to reflect to the ongoing exhibition at the U.S. Institute of, of Peace. It's very interesting to, to, to look what is happening, to, to make those comparisons right now. And uh, uh, Rwanda has, has been recently pronounced as one of the safest countries for, um, for solo travelers. It has even space program. Um, it's, it's, I mean, there are so many, Rwanda and, and Bosnia went into completely different, different directions. Ayla, thanks. Um, you, you mentioned younger generations, and that, uh, that um, makes me wonder. I'd like to ask uh, Anina a question about the younger generation. But before I do that, I wanted to ask you a follow-on question about, uh, about what you were just saying. And tying to the point that was made by Gerard, Gerard was mentioning that um, the conflict uh, was uh, essentially an assault on the real. Uh, where these maps and these uh, nationalist projects and objectives were, were, were trying to impose themselves on, on reality and on very real communities. To what extent do you see that happening as well with the cultural field? Because by experience, I've seen on a numerous occasion, whenever there's a book or whenever there's a film that comes out that touches a wartime question, it ignites a debate. There's a lot of uh, pushback. And, to what extent do you think that this mindset, that the, the nationalist maps that are driving these objectives are also trying to take control of the cultural field, of, of free expression by authors, filmmakers, trying to write and process what happened, what happened during the war? Well, uh, I would say that that's also part of the continuous battle that is, that is taking place 30 years on. Um, I guess the, um, the fruitful uh, conversation and fruitful activity once we see a movie or read a book was, would be to, to have a, a peaceful conversation about it. However, um, given the, um, the, the contemporary social media and other channels, uh, that has been absolutely manipulated. And um, I mean, Bosnia is as I said, 30 years on, I'm, I'm, I, I had the custom of five years earlier 
to just round the number to say it's not 25 years, it's almost 30, just to kind of to motivate discussion and to, to, to alert uh, my colleagues and my friends in, 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 in those discussions about war. And um, as I said, Bosnia and uh, its citizens, Bosnia-Herzegovina and, and its citizens are still, are, are still hostages and collateral damage in in historical way, in administrative way, in geopolitical, in ethnic, in every possible way we are in in um, economical sense, and that is absolutely uh, spilling over in all of those discussions about a movie you will see, and it always has to kind of like a pendulum to to flip on a. On an opposite side, and to give a counter uh, argument uh, that should an annulate the something that was that was formerly said. And uh, as I said, every uh, anniversary and uh, is marked by panels, discussions, and uh, roundtables. And it's really important to, to continue those uh, conversations and to spread the, um, just to spread the, the, the good intention. Because, I mean, people who are actively part of what happened 10, 20, even so, so 30 years on, those people are moving on to different um, aspects of their lives. And I'm still waiting to hear, to, to read more accounts from uh, some local um, public intellectuals, how, how just to, to like memoirs, because that's tremendously important on, uh, that's tremendously important uh, subject. Mm -hmm. But I have to say in commemorating all those, um, it, it's a very thin line between commemorating and re-traumatizing people. So that's something that we have to be really careful uh, in addressing, including books and movie projections and to avoid in every possible sense we can the, the manipulation and, uh, and I would say education plays an important part in all of that, especially educating uh, young people and I, and I was so glad to see not only this year, but so many previous years in, for instance, in Potocari, round tables uh, where a, young, a number of young people were engaged and uh, they had their own, at least they're, they, they're uh, bringing some lightness in discussions about war and, and genocide if such thing is, is possible. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Ayla. And uh, so on that issue, and I had promised a question to Amina about because we were talking about uh, younger generations, and you just mentioned, uh, Ayla, the importance of education in, in, in the younger generation. And I wanted to ask Amina, Amina, you were born after the, the war, uh, and you also, you're a researcher uh, as well, and so you, you, uh, you conduct your own research. But also, you've worked as a staff member for the uh, United Nations <coughs> residual mechanisms for the criminal tribunals in, in The Hague, which is the follow-on mechanism uh, after the International Criminal Tribunal for former Yugoslavia. Um, and you were working um, on a program or with a program um, that had a very specific objective, which was to educate the younger generations about uh, the atrocities and the, the, the crimes that were committed during the war. Can you tell us a little bit about 
about your work and the importance of, of that work. Yes, uh, Isla has made several good points about the importance of uh, educating the younger generation. And I would like to elaborate on that before talking about the importance of that program. So the fact that I was born after the war ended in, in Bosnia means that I'm a, a member of the generation of Bosnians who do not have a war experience of their own, but had to learn about the conflict uh, from their families, uh, in the school, on the street, from their friends, peers, and so on. What this means is that um, these war narratives in Bosnia tend to be heavily filtered, exaggerated, uh, or otherwise based on information that are simply not uh, based and not established as truthful facts. And in the case of Bosnia, where we have three ethnonational groups or constituent peoples as they are today, their identities have been, uh, for the most part, born out of this war, which means that they, these war narratives, the discourse about the war is a discourse about nationhood. And these sort of narratives tell the younger generation not just who they are, but how they should be. They, they tell them how they should make a sense of their own national identity um, and how they should perceive the past and the future. Um, and this is where this outreach project and information programs of the uh, International Residual Mechanism for Criminal Tribunals uh, plays a critical role. Uh, the, the program that I worked on uh, at the mechanism is called the, the Mechanism Information Program for the Affected Communities. And it is a initiative by the External Relations Office designed to um, to improve the knowledge and understanding of citizens and communities in the countries of the former Yugoslavia about the, the war crimes that were committed uh, at the territory of the former Yugoslavia throughout the 90s. And the program itself is not new. It is a continuation of the outreach program that was established by the ICTY in 1999. And this Established, the establishment of this outreach program by the ICTY marked a pivotal uh, moment in the existence of the tribunal because it is a moment when the, the court realized um, uh, and became aware that its work would resonate far uh, more and far further from uh, beyond its judicial uh, mandate. Uh, it recognized that it had a role to play in this process of reconciliation, in this process of reckoning with the past and dealing with the past. And this is one of the key challenges for societies emerging from conflict. And the program that I worked on throughout 2020 and 2021 um, uses the archives of the ICTY and the mechanism to craft uh, online interactive exhibitions and videos about the specific war crimes that were committed uh, during the 90s. Um, it is also a program that uh, works with the post-Ethnic generation, but not just the, the, the generation in Bosnia, but uh, the younger generations in Serbia, Croatia, Montenegro, Macedonia, and Kosovo too, um, in which uh, students are invited uh, and listened to lectures by the principals and senior officials 
from the, the mechanism uh, in which they are able to uh, not only to get acquainted with the international criminal law and how specific war crimes were processed before the ICTY and the mechanism, but it is also a, a place for a dialogue between uh, students coming from different, not just from different universities, but from different uh, successor states from the former Yugoslavia. But there is also another uh, very important part of this program, and that is work with history teachers uh, from the entire region of the former Yugoslavia except Slovenia. Um, there are several workshops designed to teach and train history teacher, high school history teachers from the former Yugoslavia on how to use uh, the archives of the ICTY and the mechanism in order to, uh, to craft lessons about the conflicts and teach the students about war crimes that were established before the ICTY and the mechanism. So uh, this program has a critical role to play in educating the younger generation, uh, but not just, not just the younger generation, but also uh, the generation that has experienced the war. Um, but it is difficult to determine the extent, the extent of its impact because it is hard to quantify uh, this sort of impact, mm -hmm. and it is hard to observe it too. So it will only be possible in the upcoming decades to see how successful this uh, program of educating the younger generation and history teachers was successful. Thanks, Amina. We're, time is flying. Uh, I wanted to jump into the, the third part of our conversation, which is to try to connect the work that, um, that we've been talking about to other conflicts, and particularly uh, the conflict in Ukraine. And I wanted to start with Valerie, who is currently reporting on the war in Ukraine and Russia's uh, uh, invasion of Ukraine. Um, and, and Valerie, I wanted to ask you, looking back at your reporting in Bosnia, and what you're currently reporting on in, in Ukraine. What connections are you making between both contexts? Are there connections? And, and if so, what, what are those connections? Thank you, Philippe. Uh, absolutely, there, there are quite a lot. And I don't think I spend a single day in Ukraine without thinking about Bosnia uh, and my friends there, my time there. Uh, what they went through and 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 how also how it is for them i, I think we'll maybe we'll get to this later but i i do think this war has been very difficult for for many of my bosnian friends to watch um i think actually gerard summed it up very well when he said the assault on the real i think um i think it's pos I, I think it was already incredibly extreme in the bosnian war and things that we saw like um you know, Serb military leaders and political leaders saying that the Bosniaks bomb, the Bosnians bombed themselves in Markale or were committing atrocities in order to get Western sympathy. Um, this has been raised to, I think, a, a, an even more grotesque scale in Russia. Uh, just every single day, I receive press releases from the Russian military saying, like, be aware if there is a if there is an announcement, or if, sorry, if, if, if there is um, an incident 
in, in Odessa, say, they, they might name a location and say, uh, be aware that, that we have uncovered a plot, you know, that, that these people are crisis actors, that they, are, that they have received $100 in advance and $500, uh, will receive $500 at the end of the plot to film what looks like a catastrophe that they will blame on the Russians. So they're now sending these kind of advance warnings about, about uh, conspiracy theories. Uh, just this morning, I think, a Russian investigation into the bombing of the drama theater in Mariupol uh, was uh, concluded, and and uh, the, those who um, carried it out said that actually they concluded that there was a bomb from inside. So the people who had been sheltering the bomb uh, in the in the in the theater, uh, or the military uh, that had been defending them, which of course the Russians will refer to as Nazis, uh, blew themselves up. But anyways, they say there was only you know there was only a handful of victims. So you know this type of rhetoric and materials uh, we are getting constantly. And I think that's one of the things that scares me most, having now spent time, uh, spent the last decade or so reporting in the region is, you know, the consequences of this, even if the war ended tomorrow, the consequences of this will now last for generations, I believe, uh, generations who have been, you know, fed propaganda to the extent that you know, people with families in Russia don't, sorry, people, yeah, Ukrainians with families in Russia are consistently calling them, telling them what they're experiencing, and their families don't believe them. You know, the, the level of denial, uh, even now, is so strong that, that I fear, you know, how, how, how it will affect the entire community, as we've seen, you know, uh, in eastern Bosnia, in a place where on July 11th, somebody thinks it's okay to hold a dinner celebrating the liberation of Srebrenica. Um, so I think, you know, ha having something like this, you know, for a country that has mostly based its uh, pride uh, and, and its, uh, you know, historical power on, on defeating fascism in World War II, at least this is, of course, what all the Russians are, you know, are proud of and talk about, um, I think this now will become a much darker even darker than, than it has been. Um, what are the other, I mean, there are so many things, but I think it's, it's uh, first of all, the, the sheer horror and also just the, the kind of cutting of, of long-term ties between family and friends that existed you know, before between Ukraine, Belarus, Russians, and people who lived there that have now been completely severed. Uh, uh, I was on the northern border in the Chernigiv region of Ukraine a few weeks ago talking to a family, you know, and one son is, is in Kyiv defending the city from a potential second invasion, and the other son is in Belarus and doesn't believe what's going on. And meanwhile, you know, uh, the parents lived in a village that has a monument to what is essentially brotherhood and unity um, of the Belarusian, Ukrainian, and Russian people that's now soon to be destroyed. So it's this, it's this real, um, it's, it's, I think it's, total, it's just so difficult, even now after, after five months or well into the fifth month, for people to grasp and understand how this could happen, why it happened, and how propaganda can, can be so much stronger than, than family ties. But the last thing I wanted to say, too, that I think uh, really struck me is the resilience and the strength you know, I was never in Bosnia during the war, but 
many, I spent many hours talking with friends about how difficult it was, but also the many ways that Isla mentioned some of them that people found to, to show their strength, to continue uh, despite horrible conditions, to, to find beauty and, and culture in life. And I, I think that's also um, very true in Ukraine. There is a, a real strong defiance and resilience in, in, despite you know the daily horrors, whether it's an attack on a residential building near Odessa or um, you know the the killing in, of 25 people in a shopping mall in central Ukraine, um, people are finding outlets, uh, creative outlets, um, and 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 resilience, and and nobody more than than my local Ukrainian colleagues. You know, I get a lot of messages from my friends, especially friends in the Balkans, saying thank you for what you're doing. It uh, must be really hard, and. Um, I of course appreciate them, but you know, of my colleagues, uh, one of our local colleagues, you know, her her sister's house in in Bucha was occupied for a month by by Russian soldiers. You know, she gets up every day and like goes with the photographers and makes pictures and interviews of people whose lives have been destroyed. You know, when when her sister-in-law's house, her sister, you know, it, it, it affects everyone. Our another fantastic local colleague, his brother was just drafted in the army, you know, and these people are going out every day and 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 helping us tell really important stories and I'm very, very grateful to them. Thanks, Valerie. Sorry, probably not what you expected. <laughs> Thanks so much for, uh, for your, your account and the parallels that, that you've seen. On, on the issue, you've talked about resilience and you've talked about um, how the population reacts <clears throat> when, when facing the impact of war and atrocities. I want to go back to Emina and ask her, um, you know, we, we are reading continuously uh, about the hopes and the efforts, the unprecedented efforts by Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainian officials, but as well as international officials in making sure that uh, perpetrators of war crimes uh, and whomever is violating norms of international humanitarian law are held accountable um, in, in, during, you know, for whatever is, is in whatever crimes are being perpetrated in, in Ukraine. Uh, so my question to you for having worked on such a mechanism or such, you know, as part of a, an institution, what would be your recommendation if you were, if you had the opportunity to talk to people in Ukraine who are hoping for accountability, what would you tell them uh, to expect in, 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 in the upcoming years? Well, at, at the time uh, when the ICTY was established in 1993, it was rather unclear if the tribunal would be able to make a single indictment. Um, the, the road to justice in the case of Bosnia was, uh, was foggy. It, it, was, it was really not clear uh, what the tribunal was going to be able to do. Uh, so speaking from the Bosnian experience, I would emphasize that the, the, the journey to justice is a long one. It is an uneasy one and can be often frustrating. And this is particularly the case with prosecuting war crimes and uh, holding account accountable officials who are responsible for them. And I think what the Bosnian experience can teach those seeking justice in Ukraine is that accountability is possible, uh, but that even the most obvious and self-evident war crimes 
um, take significant time to be judicially processed. And the same applies to uh, the process of determining the, the line and the hierarchy of responsibility for the war crimes uh, committed. And uh, there's also the issue of time and speed with processing war crimes. And this, uh, the issue of speed at which the, the trials were held at the IECTY and later at the mechanism were met with particular frustration uh, in Bosnia. Uh, to, to this day, the, there is still one case left before the mechanism that has not been completed. Uh, so we're talking about uh, more than two decades of judicial proceedings in order to, to, uh, to reach justice. So what I would uh, advise to those uh, seeking justice in Ukraine is, is patience and uh, effort in documenting uh, what is going on. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Emina. Um, a few more questions before we, we end up. We're running uh, out of time soon. But I wanted to turn to, to Gerard and ask, uh, Gerard, since we're talking about the connections between um, the events and the, the, the conflict in, in Bosnia and what we're seeing in Ukraine today, you just recently published a very thoughtful piece, uh, piece in the Irish Times where you identified a number of parallels that you saw. Can you tell us a little bit more about the, the thinking that went behind that, that piece? And what were those parallels? Uh, sure. Um, so that piece in the Irish Times uh, was really organized around four keywords uh, that I thought um, emerged out of, of Bosnia, but very much applied in the, in the Ukraine context. And, and the first of those words was uh, ethnic cleansing. Uh, it's not a term that you hear a lot in the Ukraine war, but behind that term is the idea of uh, demographic reorganization, demographic change, um, and the, uh, this effort by um, a violent, through a violent uh, coup of violence of, of, uh, of an army attacking a particular place to destroy it, to remake it. Um, uh, that's something that we saw in uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina. It's something that is playing itself out in Ukraine. I actually do research in Ukraine, and I know from the public opinion research that my colleagues and I do, that there was no constituency whatsoever in the Donbass, uh, the, the Kiev-controlled Donbass, for its liberation by uh, Moscow, by the DNR and the LNR. There was no constituency for that whatsoever. Uh, this was something that was sort of imposed upon uh, that, uh, the, these, that particular territory and, the, of course, Ukraine itself. Um, there also wasn't, uh, there isn't support for uh, this idea that uh, uh, Ukraine needs to be liberated from fascism. Uh, and here, uh, and I didn't really talk about this in the, in the Irish Times article, but here we have to talk about the continuity between what communist myth has produce, produced, and the continuity is the, the fascist. The fascist is the enemy. Right, and so you justify your uh, attack you, uh, on others by saying they're fascist. And so we saw that with the uh, particular rhetoric that was used 
by uh, Milosevic mm -hmm. uh, in, uh, in Yugoslavia against uh, Bosnia, uh, against uh, the Croat forces, but also including the, uh, against uh, Bosnian Muslim forces too. And of course, this is the same particular rhetoric that Vladimir Putin is using. The sort of the fascist is uh, from the West and is constantly plotting. Uh, against us, and therefore that's a justification. Second thing that I talked about in that particular article was this idea of um, uh, herbicide, and it's a term which comes out of uh, uh, you know, those that are studying war and the way in which the material environment, particularly cities, places of mixing, places of community, of, uh, um, of a difference, are destroyed in war, and there's a sort of a war against the material environment. Uh, that was something that this idea of herbicide was used to describe what was happening in Mostar. Uh, by architects there, and you know those of you who are familiar with Mostar know how massive, how the, uh, the the kind of center of it was completely flattened, completely destroyed. Well, Severodonetsk uh, today, uh, and of course Mariupol. Uh, completely destroyed. So there's, a, there's a really attack on the urban. Uh, so that was a second thing. A third thing was uh, this idea of refugees. Uh, and again, it's a term which goes back to Sarajevo and an art collective that used this particular term, the uh, great uh, social anthropologist, uh, Steph Janssen, Belgian, who, uh, who studied uh, uh, refugee communities and uh, displacement in Sarajevo uh, has an article on this uh, idea. And it's essentially the ways in which uh, refugees or displaced persons were moved around strategically to consolidate territories. Uh, and we are seeing that uh, today also in, uh, in eastern Ukraine. And the last term was, was the term genocide and the way in which that itself becomes a way of uh, othering another community. And uh, you know, Valerie would be very familiar with this, the way in which Srebrenica was evoked by Putin uh, and used as a justification that we have to protect the people of Donetsk uh, and Luhansk from the genocide that is being perpetrated against them. And there was also a rhetoric of mass graves too. That was all part of the attempt to try to create a justification for uh, what was, um, what is a criminal war against Ukraine. Uh, launched by, by Russia and its allies. Mm -hmm. Thanks, uh, Gerard. I wanted to end with a question to, to Paul. Um, uh, we started with you, Paul. <laughs> we will, uh, you're bookending uh, the, the, the event. But I wanted to ask you, um, you, you covered the war in Bosnia, and uh, you've interviewed victims and perpetrators of, uh, of atrocities and war crimes. When you see what is going on right now in the world, and it can extend beyond Ukraine because you've covered a lot of conflicts as well, um, <clears throat> what do you see? Um, what are your ref reflections today about the role of journalists in covering uh, these, these issues? Oh, let me preface by saying I have nothing intelligent to say about the Ukraine. I'm not there, I'm not doing it, and there's nothing worse than journalists talking about stuff that they're not covering. Um, I do think, as a consumer, that overall uh, coverage of the conflict 
I mean, it's very different. Communications are different. I mean, there's always differences. But I, it, in general, I think an extraordinary job is being done by lots of people, including Valerie. Um, and, and it's not easy. It's hard. It's dangerous. Uh, and uh, the world is a better place because there are people laying it on the line every day to do that. Um, so I think there is a fundamentally important role for the day-to-day -day witnessing. Um, without extrapolating to the Ukraine, um, I do think that there's, we tend to get very, I think we tend to get very short-sighted. And I'm a journalist, I'm not a policy guy, but you know, there's nothing new whatsoever about driving populations out of territory as a war aid. I mean, talk to the Aztecs or the Kashmiris or the Palestinians or the Navajo. Uh, it's gone on for thousands of years. It's gone on for as long, which doesn't make it right. But uh, wars end, and when the shooting ends, most of the time, there's been significant change in demographics. And for a long time now, we in the West have sort of had this Helsinki Accords notion that lines are inviolate and we just have to somehow work it out. Um, and yet we haven't managed to work it out on those criteria. This war is going to end like all wars. Um, with the facts on the ground being different. And, and if the starting point for the policy community is we have to go back to the status quo ante, um, we'll wind up with the kind of things that our Bosnian colleagues have been talking about, which it, it, it doesn't really resolve. It just hangs on. The trauma continues. People relive it every time. I don't have a solution. I'm simply saying that what we've been doing we in the West have been doing at the end of conflicts where we've had a role or we've interfered uh, for generations um, isn't working. Not hasn't worked for the Kurds, hasn't worked for the Palestinians, hasn't worked for, it didn't work in Rwanda. Um, and it's, a, there's some clearly uh, some new ideas are needed. Paul, thank you for, uh, for your reflections. Um, and I want to thank everyone. Uh, we're running out of time. We, <laughs> we were planning on, on, uh, on finishing the event much earlier. But we wanted to thank everyone for participating. And we want to invite those of you in the audience who uh, would be interested in visiting the Imagine exhibit to um, head this way. And you can go and visit the exhibit, which is right next door. And if you want to visit or have a look at the exhibit online as well, you can go on our website at www.usip.org forward slash imagine, and you can have a look at the exhibit. Or if you're not here today, and if you would like to see the exhibit, you're more than welcome to sign up online and secure your place and your position and your time frame to go and see the exhibit here. I wanted to thank everyone. I wanted to thank particularly our panelists today for what was uh, an excellent conversation about uh, the role uh, of 
journalists, of, of writers, of academics in documenting the impact of, 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 of war on, on the civilian population in Bosnia. Um, so thank you very much for joining us today at USIP, and I wish all of you uh, a very good afternoon. Thank you. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.